So now we're a little bit past the halfway mark in the year 2020. And no matter how many times we reflect on the year, it feels unbelievable, doesn't it? A worldwide pandemic causing schools to shut down. Parents trying to work from home with kids running around all over the place. And many of our physical bodies breaking down all of a sudden. Our families and uh, friends passing away due to illnesses. Our country filled with anger and people looting due to the inequality in our country. And about two weeks ago, this random storm blows through town, knocking out much of the power in our area for days. And you know what's sad? The graduates in our area who had their graduation canceled because of COVID-19, their car parade was canceled too. And it had to be rescheduled because of this ridiculous storm. It's so crazy, isn't it? And before the announcement of moving into the yellow phase, things just didn't seem like it was going to let up, right? However, as tough as the year has been, it hasn't been completely filled with sorrow. There's been many blessings and times of joy too. We got to slow down and spend more time with family. And let's be honest, if it wasn't for this COVID-19 pandemic, we probably wouldn't be spending this much time with our loved ones. We had several new babies at Grace Point who were born and are doing well, who are healthy. Many students graduated from elementary school, middle school, high school, and college. And people still got married through Zoom, right? And one of my favorite parts of this pandemic is that birthdays, in my opinion, I think they were very awesome. Saving parents a lot of money and all the grief of planning parties, right? And having this wonderful, cost-efficient car parade. I loved it. And so how is it that we can find strength to get through a year like ours? Is it a matter of weighing the pros and cons? And if the pros outweigh the cons, then we'll be okay? Is it a matter of just ignoring the difficulties and just focusing on the good and telling others everything's going to be okay, don't worry? No, if we look at our passage, the key to our text is not fixing our eyes on the difficulties or the physical and earthly blessings around us, but instead focusing on the spiritual and heavenly realities. And so by looking at our passage this morning, there's at least three things I want to point out about having a heavenly perspective. The first thing is to have a heavenly perspective. It means it affects what we live for. The second thing is to have a heavenly perspective. It means it affects who we are and our identity. And the last thing is to have a heavenly perspective. It means it affects how we view time and how 
we come to realize that life is really short. And so first, to have a heavenly perspective, I'd like us to see that it means that it affects what we live for. Now, I know we've been looking at Joseph and his family for some time. And so many of us, we may be losing steam and the excitement of our story. But let me remind us that for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the meat of our story and the climax of our narrative. We recently read about Joseph meeting his brothers. And after wondering what would happen now that the shoe is on the other foot. We saw finally revealing himself, Joseph would go to his brothers and say, it's me, Joseph. You thought by selling me, you left me for dead, but I'm alive. And instead of revenge, he throws his arms around his brothers and he hugs them and kisses them and they weep together. And last week we saw, after being separated for over 20 years, over 20 years, can you imagine that? We desperately long to see our friends and family after three months of staying at home. But after 22 years, Joseph and his father finally reunite. And again, like his reunion with his brothers, they're hugging each other, they're kissing each other, and they're just crying out together. And now that Jacob's fear and sadness, thinking that his son was eaten by animals and killed, he's so happy to see Joseph. He's so happy that he cries out, now I can die in peace. And now today, it's the meeting of the masterminds. Jacob, the OG, Joseph's true and biological father, who's coming pretty much empty-handed, poor, and with nothing to offer. He's about to meet the Pharaoh who is pretty much Joseph's godfather because he took care of him and he gave Joseph everything that he has. And so the question is, what's going to happen at this meeting? Will they get along or will they argue? Will Joseph be able to keep his promises that he said, go and get dad, bring him back and I'll give you the best land, right? Will he be able to keep his promises? Or did he write checks that he can't cash? And if you look at our passage, even though Joseph was the right-hand man of the Pharaoh, he was obviously worried and scared about this meeting. So much so, if you go back to chapter 46, Joseph does his best to prep his brothers and his fathers about the meeting and what to say. And then in the beginning of our chapter, he runs to the Pharaoh before the family gets there to prime the pump a little bit and to get Pharaoh ready. And so here we are in this short, a really important conversation between the two fathers. And the first thing we're told in verse 7 and actually in verse 10, if you jump down, is that Jacob is the one that blesses Pharaoh. 
Now, as modern day readers, most of us probably miss the significance of this. And we think that a blessing is this small, trivial thing. And I know many times when something good happens, we like to say, oh, what a blessing, right? Or we treat it like it's wishful thinking. Oh, God bless you. God bless your soul, right? But if you look in the Bible, a blessing is something that's passed down to us like an inheritance. A blessing has power to change and transform people. And the blessing is almost like a prophecy where it takes spiritual discernment. Someone telling you and sharing not only who you are today, but who you're meant to be. And the second thing we need to see about this conversation between these two men is a stark difference between them. Jacob is coming to the table with almost nothing. And Pharaoh is coming to the table with everything. And yet it's Jacob who blesses Pharaoh. And this is crazy because back then, if anyone, right, and especially a poor shepherd came before the Pharaoh, they would come on their hands and knees looking for Pharaoh to bless them. But not Jacob. And although, again, typically it's the greater that blesses the weaker. Jacob, the guy who used to be so obsessed with blessings that would go around saying, bless me, please bless me, right? Remember, he was the one that deceived his father and stole his brother's blessing. He's the one that would wrestle the angel and wrestle God all night until he got his blessing. But at this point in his life, we read that he wants to actually give. He wants to actually bless others. Why is that? How is that? Well, you know, during this pandemic, there's this one couple I've been uh, meeting for premarital counseling. And what we decided to do was to read one of Paul Tripp's books together and to use it as a starting point for our discussion. And one biblical truth that uh, Tripp talks about that I love is that to truly love one another, to be sacrificial, to have a selfless marriage, the battle is not between us and our spouse, and it, nor is it a battle between us and ourselves about with our inner being of being so selfish. But the real issue is due to a deep war between us and God. That is the truth is that we were made to be kingdom oriented people. And so we either live in one or two kingdoms or for one or two kingdoms. Either we are living for our own kingdom and our own personal happiness, or we are living for God's kingdom and seeking happiness in him. And if we can answer this question, whose kingdom are we living for? If we choose the former, that is, if we choose our kingdom, then the tendency is to dehumanize people, to view our spouses as vehicles 
to get what we want, right? Either vehicles to get what we want or the obstacles trying to stop us or getting in the way of what we want. But if we choose the latter, that we choose to live for God's kingdom, the tendency is not to dehumanize people, but to actually value them. And because we feel so secure in God's love, we can love, we can serve, and we can actually bless other people, right? Rather than looking for them to bless us and give to us all the time. And I share this because, again, although typically it's the greater that blesses uh, the weaker person, right? Why would Jacob, who has so little, why would all of a sudden something is switching gears in his head? Why is he wanting to bless others? And the answer is because he has a heavenly perspective. He's so secure in God's love. And he's been living for God's kingdom now and not his own. And that's why Jacob is able to stand before Pharaoh and he is willing and wanting to bless others rather than himself. The second thing I want us to see to have a heavenly perspective is that it means it affects who we are and our identity. You know, as Tay and I are going on our 16th year of marriage, you know, we've moved and lived in almost 10 different homes together. In 16 years, almost 10 different homes. And although it was crazy, I almost felt like a criminal, like I'm trying to dodge the authorities, right? It was really crazy how many times we moved. Still, I have to say, in some ways, it felt pretty nice. It was nice because with each move, although it was hard in the beginning, near the end, it was so freeing, not being tied down to a place and being able to move anywhere and everywhere, right? And it felt so good being able to purge a lot of our stuff and trying to minimize the things that we own down to the stuff that we really need. And in general, it made me less anxious about things. And I actually felt more excited about my next home and wondered what it would be like and wondered if it would be my forever home. And I share this because this is another reason we know Jacob had a heavenly perspective. Because just as our passage tells us that Jacob blessed Pharaoh twice, also two times in this meeting of the masterminds, Jacob describes his life and the life of believers as sojourners. And what is or who is a sojourner? Well, a sojourner is like a nomad who is often moving and traveling because they know the place that they're staying at is not their forever home. And if you consider Jacob's life, we know he was literally a sojourner, right? Living with his parents, Isaac and Rebecca, and then running away and living with Laban, who would become his father-in-law. And then before coming to Egypt, the Bible actually mentions like two or three other places that Jacob lived. However, to be a sojourner 
in the Bible, it means more than just being a nomad. But it means in the spiritual sense, knowing that this world is not our home. And instead, we're just travelers passing through it until we reach our true home and final destination. Our final destination, which is heaven, where our Father resides. Now, in the context of our passage, you have to really appreciate what Jacob is saying and trying to do here. Because he's standing before Pharaoh, who represents the complete opposite of a sojourner. Someone who is tied down to his land, and he knows that he'll never be moving out of Egypt. Someone who has collected so many possessions, I'm sure he would have a hard time letting go of anything. And that's why all the pharaohs who were buried, they were buried with their treasures, right? And ironically, although many ancient Egyptians claimed to believe in the afterlife, clearly the pharaoh lived like this world was his forever home. And yet Jacob has the boldness to step up against the biggest anti-sojourner in the world and basically evangelize to him saying, sure, your home, your car, your silverware, everything about your home here, it's pretty nice. But I think you're getting things confused. You think this is it because you have your eyes set on this world. But if you would change your vision and change your eyes to be set on heaven, you would know that there's more to this life, more than this life, I should say. And you would start to live as a sojourner. And this is important for us to see because like Pharaoh and like Frodo, it's easy to take our eyes off the ball. And become mesmerized by the things of this world, isn't it? Because if you've never seen Lord of the Rings, to quickly summarize the movie, it's mainly about two guys, Frodo and Samwise the Brave. And they're tasked to destroy this ring, right? And after a long journey, they finally reach the top of the mountain. And as Frodo holds the ring, over the lava to destroy it. He hesitates and he waits there and he's staring at the ring. Samwise from the back, he's yelling, what are you waiting for? Let go, just let go of the ring. And Frodo gazes at this gold ring one last time. He becomes so mesmerized by it. It's beauty, how shiny it is, how it represents power wealth, and status, and pretty much everything that Pharaoh represents. He turns to Sam and he says, no, the ring is mine. And it's such a sad scene, because although Frodo started the journey with the right intentions and with the right motives, after traveling, after sojourning, right, across Middle Earth, the final taste and temptation was almost proved to be too much for him. Now, you may be thinking, Frodo, you're so dumb. 
Why couldn't you just let go of that ring, right? Oh, brothers and sisters, how many times have we made the same mistake? Perhaps starting off our walk with the Lord with the best intentions. And saying aloud that, yeah, this middle earth is really not our home. We can't wait till we go to heaven. And yet, when we get a taste of the rings of our life, it's so hard to let it go, isn't it? And that's why, friends, we need to be reminded of what Jacob is telling us. That our identity is not as citizens of this world, but the citizens of heaven. And for the time being, we're just sojourners, just walking the earth. And if we could remember this truth and keep it at the forefront of our lives, it will reshape the way we look in, out into the world. It will affect our values, our goals, our desires. And we can be sure that we will be living with a heavenly perspective. Lastly, to have a heavenly perspective, it means it affects how we view life and how short it really is. You know, with all my previous churches that I served at, it was with all first-generation uh, Korean immigrant pastors, which was great in many ways. But as a second-generation Korean-American, born and raised in the States, barely able to speak Korean, the biggest difficulty was the language barrier in trying to communicate with other pastors on staff. But one thing I'll never forget that my last Korean pastor said to me, the one that baptized my daughter and he was smiling at me as I held hope in my arms. He said, you know what, Tom? Enjoy this time. Because as you get older, Life is just going to go faster and faster. And as I looked at him with this blank stare, like, you know, like, not because I didn't understand his Korean, I, I did make it out, but because life didn't seem like it was going very fast. With Hope just a couple months old and Barnes just two years old, as I had this blank stare, he turns to me and he says, no, really? It's like the age that you are at is the speed that life seems to be going at. When you are young and only a teenager, it feels like life is going slow. Like a car going 13, 14, 15 miles per hour. So slow. You can't wait to grow up and you think you're invincible and that you'll live forever. But the older you get, the college years seemed to fly by, didn't it? And then the young adult years and the first few years of our marriage. And even at first when we have children, it seems slow because of the sleepless nights and watching them all day. But at a blink of an eye, they're, they're already in middle school. And I'm not there yet. As this one pastor was closing in on 870, he was saying life is going so fast for him, like a car going 70 miles per hour. And he was saying, Tom, life is short. And that's the third thing I want to point out in our passage. 
And if you look at our text closely, it's actually quite comical. Because remember, Jacob and Pharaoh, they're meeting for the very first time. And all of a sudden, in verse 7, it tells us Jacob, Jacob come, comes out and he pronounces a blessing over Pharaoh. And so in verse 8, Pharaoh turns around and asks, how old are you? And so as a reader, you have to be saying, what? What is going on? And maybe it's because Pharaoh thought Jacob must be old and senile because who else would have the nerve to walk in and bless him, right? And so maybe that's why he asked, how old are you? But whatever the reason was, Jacob took Pharaoh's question and the opportunity to share what it means to have a heavenly perspective. Because in verse 9, Jacob says, although he's 130 years old, he describes the years as being few and difficult. Now, again, if you're a teenager or even in your 20s, you might be thinking differently, right? And if we're in our 40s or 50s or 60s, maybe we've scratched the surface a little bit and we can understand Jacob a little better. But Jacob's car of life zooming at 130 miles per hour. And after all that he's been through, all that he's seen, he looks back and basically tells Pharaoh, forget living for this life, Pharaoh. Life is short. And it'd be probably wise to listen to Jacob. Because if you look, this truth is repeated by many godly men in the Bible. Moses tells us the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. David tells us, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And in the New Testament, James tells us, You do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life, what is your life. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And of course, Peter tells us in his book, With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And so the point is, although from an earthly perspective, it seems like life is guaranteed and we will always have tomorrow. But to those who have a heavenly perspective, we know better. that life is short. And at best, it's uncertain. But the big question is, all these things describe and tell us the effects of having a heavenly perspective. How do we actually get it? How do we actually start to see the world through the lens of uh, spiritual and eternal perspective? Well, if you go back to Genesis and you think about it, our first Adam failed to have a heavenly perspective. Because when he was tempted with earthly things, he gave in. That moment when he gave in, 
Adam decided that he was going to live for his kingdom instead of God's kingdom. He forgot that even he was a sojourner. The garden was not supposed to be the forever home for people, folks. And he thought by eating the fruit, it would make him immortal and give him everlasting life. But instead, it led to death and much shorter life than he expected. But our second Adam, Jesus, was much different. And if you follow his life, he was the only one that lived a heavenly uh, life, a a life with a heavenly perspective. He was the greatest sojourner who left his home and came down to earth. And even from day one, right, the Bible tells us he had no place to lay his head. And during Jesus' life, Satan would tempt him with food when he was starving, with fame, with riches, with the world. But Jesus didn't give in. And instead, everything Jesus did and everything Jesus said was for his Father's kingdom. And if you think about Jesus' death, life should have never been short for him. He lived a perfect life. But by his grace, he took the short life in order that we can have eternal life. And so how do we start seeing the world with a heavenly perspective? Not by focusing on the things of this world, but by focusing on Jesus, who is the foundation and the reason for everything. And when we are anchored in him, we are a people eternally secured and anchored in heaven. And when we trust in God, We can live and operate out of the fact that we have a greater land than Goshen. We have heaven waiting for us. And so before I close, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you with a couple of things. First, it's easy to get mesmerized by the things of this world, isn't it? And if you think, nope, not me, then you're just fooling yourself. And that's why, you know what we all need in this life? Each of us need our own Samwise the Brave. Someone who will call us out when we are fixed on earthly things and we can't let go. Someone who will sojourn with us and help us in our journey. And if you don't have one, you need to get one. You need to find one by maybe joining a growth group. You need to find one by reaching out to brothers and sisters in our church. And you need to find one. And sometimes all you need to do is to pray and ask God to provide. And surely he will. The second thing I also want to know is, you know, the season has definitely been tough for all of us. And the temptation is great, isn't it? To fix our eyes on the difficulties and to feel hopeless, and to just sit in our miseries, in our, in our loss. But don't do it, guys. That's what the enemy wants us to do. 
either for us to focus on our wins and our successes and to cherish those things, right? And to not let go. Or he wants us to focus on our losses and our failures and the difficulties of life. But instead, just as Paul tells us in his second letter to the Corinthian church, we need to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, don't fix your eyes on your difficulties or on the perishable things, but fix them on Jesus and what is eternal. And you will be sure to live a life of hope and you will have a heavenly perspective.